Uh, this morning, we are finishing that series in our Summer of Psalms. We're in Psalm 130, as was just read. Um, it's uh, one more of those Psalms of Ascent, which means it, it takes us on that journey of joy together as we draw, draw together into God's very presence to worship him. It's only fitting then that we begin with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you now, expectant, hopeful, hopeful in your word that we will find a way into your very throne room, that you will tear down the barrier that is between us and you, our very sins and the guilt that our hearts bear, that you will show us the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. And lead us together into your presence with joy to worship you. Uh, Father, as we now pay careful attention to these words given, to this song you gave your people to sing, would you help us to see the way that you have opened up, that our joy might be full together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite movies is a, a bit of a dark horse. It's not very popular. It uh, goes by the name Get Low. It stars Robert Duvall. At first, it feels like it's a comedy. Uh, Robert Duvall plays a gruff, rough-around-the-edges recluse, the, the sort of guy that lives in a cabin outside of town that no one quite knows why he keeps to himself, but everyone knows if you go knocking on his door, you'll get a warning shot as his greeting. As the story unfolds, it becomes obvious, though, that this is not just a mere comedy. It's actually a story about one of the most basic of all human needs, the need for forgiveness. At a pivotal moment in the story, uh, the, his character, Felix Bush, is meeting with a preacher, and they get into a heated exchange. He, he, uh, Felix Bush says, I built my own jail and put myself in it. I've stayed in it for 40 years. No wife, no kids, no friends, no nothing. I wouldn't even know how to hold a baby. 40 years, and now you're telling me that's not enough? Felix Bush is a character whose heart is weighed down with a long, long endured weight of guilt. He knows he's sinned, but he doesn't know how to get his heart out under this burden of guilt and how, most importantly, to find the freedom of forgiveness. Uh, realize that our hearts all have this need. All of us have the need for forgiveness. Now, we live at a time that people like to think in terms of the therapeutic. That is, we think most about our emotions and how to make ourselves feel good. So we take this need for forgiveness and we turn it into the need to forgive ourselves, to think better about ourselves, to not be so down about our weaknesses and our failures. Or we, we think about it in terms of the social, of how we can feel better by being behind the right causes. Now, as important as it might be in some instances for, to engage in both those things, realize that the Bible tells us that our most important need is to find forgiveness from God. That guilt is really a warning sign of a greater symptom, the need for your heart to be freed of sin before a holy God. 
Now, Psalm 130 has that burden to it, to show us the way to find forgiveness before God for a purpose, to worship God. It shows us that we are forgiven so we can worship. And as we study it this morning, I hope you'll come to this conclusion, that we need God's plentiful redemption to be able to worship him together. We need God's plentiful redemption to be able to worship him together. Or put another way, you need to be forgiven so that you can worship. There are four sections to this psalm that will be our four steps along the way. Each makes up uh, two verses, first in one through two. It's coming to the realization that we are guilty before God. Guilty before God. Second... It's finding forgiveness from God or forgiveness by God in three through four. Third, it's what comes after our forgiveness, waiting for God, waiting for God in verses five and six. And then finally, us together worshiping God, together worshiping God in verses seven and eight. Let's begin in that first section. Realizing that we are, in fact, guilty before God. The psalm starts in a rather familiar place, if you've been with us. The psalmist crying out to God for mercy. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Sounds a lot like Psalm 56 that we studied a few weeks ago. Uh, a sinful person crying out to God for mercy and forgiveness. Now, you can see that this psalm is, in fact, about the guilt of sins. Right down in the, the next verse, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities or sins, O Lord, who could stand? Uh, now, to make it a little easier for us to digest, I'm actually going to jam verse 3 in verse, with verses 1 through 2. Because I think one of the things we need to be convinced of in this day and age is that our sins before God are really the problem. Uh, in that movie, Get Low, there's one point where Felix Bush says, people, pe people keep talking about forgiveness, saying I need to ask Jesus for forgiveness. I don't know why I never did nothing to him. I think a lot of people have thoughts like that. Why would I need to ask God to forgive me? Why would I need to cry out for God's mercy for sin? I've never done anything consciously. I've never gone out of my way to offend God. And yet where the Bible teaches is that our basic problem is that we are creatures that have fallen short of our creator. That we are made to be in relationship with God, but there's something between us. And that something is our sins. The image that verse 3 gives us is of God almost as a, a teacher going, th marking papers with a red pen. Uh, students learn very quickly whether a teacher is a hard grader or an easy grader. I remember hearing of one particular teacher that had a reputation for being a particularly easy grader, not really paying all that much attention. Well, word got out, and so when the term papers were due, students started seeing what they could get away with. They started not adding footnotes at the bottom. 
Then they started embedding little jokes here and there. Well, well, one student even got so brazen that they even inserted a whole paragraph from Harry Potter into the middle of their turn paper. Why? Because there, there was no consequence. There was no real grading going on. Everyone was just getting a check mark at the top. Now, how different is it when a student knows that the red pen is going to come out and that the teacher is going to go through line by line to mark any errors? The, the psalmist asked a rhetorical question. If God were to, to go through my life with that red pen, if he were to go thought by thought, deed by deed, desire by desire through my life, there's no way I would come out with a passing grade. In fact, there's no way anyone would come out with a passing grade. Because as the Bible teaches, we all fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. Which means our great problem is to find forgiveness before God. Friend, you might be able to fool other people about what sort of person you are. You may be able to convince your friends and neighbors that you're a nice guy. You may be able to fool close friends of yours to make them think that you're living a good life. You may be even be able to fool yourself to feel good about the life you've been living, but there's no fooling God. There's no fooling the one who knows all our ways, who knows every thought, every word before you even say it. And that means if God is the one you need to worry about, then God is the one you need to cry out to mercy for, to, the one you need to seek for forgiveness. That's where the psalmist starts. He recognizes his guilt before God, and he cries out for mercy. He's desperate for it. The question is, will God forgive? That's the second step along the way in verses 3 through 4. Psalmist finds that he is forgiven by God. Forgiven by God. We've already looked at verse 3, but verse 4 has a, a sharp turn to it. But with you there is forgiveness. Uh, Martin Luther said that this is the most Pauline of all the Psalms. A, a way of saying that there is a, a gospel logic to it. You see, it begins with the thought that we are hopelessly guilty, sinners before a holy God. And yet the good news is this God forgives. There is a way for us to drop our burdens of guilt, to have the barrier between us and God taken away. How is it? Well, the answer, of course, we know as Christians comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. Even back when the psalmist wrote, God was in the business of forgiving sins. Now we know how he was in that business. He was looking forward to the day when his son would die as a substitute for sins. To pay the penalty that sinners deserve. Romans 3, 25 through 26 is, teaches us this logic. It's about Jesus crucified. It says this, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over for former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Paul's logic is that God had some explaining to do. Why would God forgive sins again and again and again? Why would he forbear with wicked people again and again and again for generation after generation? It's because God was looking forward to the propitiation, the turning away of his wrath that was coming when Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice. In the death of Jesus, God proved himself to be both just and the one that could justify you, to make you right with him now and forever. That's how the psalmist could find forgiveness. And friends, that's how you could find forgiveness today. Because of the blood of Jesus, there is not a single person who is beyond the forgiveness of standing right before God in his presence. What this psalm teaches us is that our greatest need has been met by the cross of Jesus. That there is forgiveness to be found if we know where to find it. If we know who to come to ask for mercy. Now Christians, I need to point you to the application that's drawn from this. This forgiveness that the psalmist finds, look at the end of verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The application is that you are forgiven, not so you can live for yourself and go off and indulge your sins. No, you are forgiven so that you may reverently, before God, offer your life in joyful obedience to him. You are forgiven so that you can worship him, both in the words you speak and in the actions that flow from your heart. You are forgiven to be his forever. Maybe this week when you are contemplating some sin, you remember that you were forgiven by Jesus so that you might fear God. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, the most important thing that I want you to know about Christianity is this. It addresses the, the true cause of the guilt your heart sometimes feels. Uh, at some point or the other, you'll find yourself feeling bad about something you've done. Now, in that moment, you can believe the, what the world around you tells you, that those are thoughts to be suppressed. Those are things that you should try and divert your attention from. But the Bible tells us that that guilt is actually a mercy from God if it leads you to God. The greatest problem that you have, friend, is not your own self-esteem, the greatest problem is that you need to know that your guilt is wiped away before the God who will one day judge you. Uh, the Bible tells us that's possible if you put your trust in his son Jesus. The one he sent to come and be the sacrifice for sins so that you don't have to be punished. If you put your trust in Jesus, you'll find unlimited forgiveness. Every single one of your sins wiped away even better than as if they'd never happened. You'll actually be welcomed into God's presence as a beloved son, a daughter, as, a, as someone he longs to see. But friend, if you reject the son he sent, if you try to enter God's presence on your own merit, you'll find yourself answering the question of the psalmist. If God were to mark our iniquities, who could stand? Friend, find 
the forgiveness you need with Jesus today. Now, it's vitally important for us to understand that we need to find forgiveness from God. But the psalm doesn't end there because it's not just about being forgiven. It's about being forgiven so we can worship God together. And that's what the two final legs of this journey show us. Next, in verses 5 through 6, we see what happens after you're forgiven. The goal is not just to not feel guilty. The goal is God himself. That's what we see waiting for God in verses 5 through 6. Twice we are told that the psalmist waits for God. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his, in his word, I hope. Now what is the psalmist waiting for? I don't think it's right to think he's waiting to be forgiven. He seems to have already figured out where to find forgiveness. I think it's better to understand this as him waiting for the renewal of his relationship with God. That, that sense of joy you have when you're right with God and you are enjoying his very presence in the quiet of your own heart. He's waiting for, as David would say, the joy of his salvation to return. And he is hopeful, even expectant, that he will, his wait will not be in vain, that God will be his reward. In verse 6, he gives us a picture to what this waiting is like. He says, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Ancient watchmen had a tough job. Back in the days before artificial light or digital communication, it was a dangerous thing for there to be no sun to see by to see your enemies coming. That meant that the watchmen on the walls had a great responsibility. They stayed awake while everyone else was vulnerable while they slept. They were to be the eyes that never slept, the eyes that were always open, peering out, looking for dangers that might lurk in the dark. Imagine yourself given that great responsibility each and every night. Imagine how you must long to watch even the faint glow of the sky during the dawn. Imagine how you looked forward to the moment when you knew your watch was over and that you had seen the city through to another safe evening and to a bright morning. Uh, that's the sort of longing that the psalmist describes here as he waits for God. Someone who's desperate, expectant, and yet can't do anything but wait. Theologian Andrew Murray in his book, Waiting for God, describes how a Christian is to wait for God. He points out that there are many things in this world that rely on sunshine to live. Plants, flowers, trees, each and every one of them need the sun or they have no life. But what do those organisms do? How do they get the sun to shine on them? He points out they do nothing. They simply wait. So it is for the Christian. We desperately need God's presence. There is nothing that will satisfy your heart like knowing that you are in close communion with God. And yet there are seasons where you must wait for it. 
Oh, you, there are some things that you do. You open your heart toward God. You, you wait with trust, but still you wait. There's no shortcuts. No microwave to prepare this spiritual feast. Some things have to be waited on so you can savor them when they arrive. The spiritual life that a Christian lives oftentimes includes long waits. Uh, I, as a pastor, I'm convinced that one of the quickest ways to get yourself in spiritual danger is to be impatient. To not be willing to wait on God and to instead go after the quick fixes in the spiritual realm. Uh, chase after something that gives you a sense of spiritual life, some spiritual high, as if you can manufacture it. But friends, the real thing it's not something you can produce. It's something that shines down on your heart and you simply receive. Uh, maybe this week you've had trouble in your quiet time. 15 minutes may seem like a long time for you to read and pray and be silent. But friend, what you're waiting for will be worth the wait. The goal isn't just to feel good. The goal is God himself. And one day his joy will flood your heart again. Uh, maybe you've been far from God and it's been a long time since you felt that special warmth of his sun shining into your heart. Maybe some sin has been between you and God. And even after you've repented, it's been, seems like forever since you've known that joy. Friend, don't lose hope. Some things are worth waiting for, and one day your wait will be over. Uh, God is using your endurance. You're waiting on him to prepare you for the joys that he will one day show you. Uh, whether that's in a breakthrough someday on this earth, or on the day when you'll see him face to face. And your joy in his presence will go on forever. Will you wait for the Lord? I will wait for you. I will wait for you through the storm and through the night. I will wait for you, surely wait for you, till my soul is satisfied. Let's be a sort of people that waits for the Lord, and our wait will be worth it. There's one final leg to the journey. As the psalmist declares his intention to wait for the Lord, in the last section, he declares to others to find the same forgiveness he has found. In verses 7 through 8, we see together worshiping God. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, for he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. As we've seen in other psalms, there is a shift in speaker here, or a shift in who he is speaking to. No longer is he describing himself and his experience with God. Now he is telling others how they can have the same experience. He dares to tell them to hope in God. And then he gives them two reasons why they should. The first is because there, the Lord is a God full of steadfast love. 
That's God's hesed love, his, his covenant love for his people, the love that chose them from the beginning, that has kept them safe every step of the way, and the love that has promised to forgive them of their sins. He reminds them that God will not abandon his promises to his people. He is a God full of grace and love. And then there is, in my view, one of the most beautiful phrases in the entire Bible. That last line in verse 7. And with him is plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. Our family's been reading the adventures of a boy named Homer Price. Homer's the sort of kid that is always in the center of trouble in his town of Centerville. Um, and yet he's good-hearted and seems to find his way out of all the jams he gets himself into. And one particular uh, occasion, he was helping his uncle in his donut shop. And his uncle had bought a new gizmo that automatically made donuts. You just put in the batter, turned it on, and it would do everything from frying them up to powdering them with sugar and rolling them off the assembly line. Well, Homer had to do some work for his uncle because the machine wasn't working. And so he and a friend got inside and did some work, and all of a sudden the machine started producing donuts. Unfortunately, then the machine would not stop producing donuts. It says, uh, Homer pushed the button, Mark, stop, and there was a little click, but nothing happened. The rings of batter kept right on dripping into the hot fat, and an automatic gadget kept right on giving them a little push, and the donuts kept right on rolling down the little chute, all ready to eat. Pretty soon he had a different problem. Where is he going to put all these donuts? Uh, he ran out of plates, so he started using the counter. Then he ran out of counter space, so he started using windowsills and chairs and stools, anything he could find. Eventually, the entire town shows up. And thankfully, they have uh, produced enough donuts that everyone is able to eat their fill, and his uncle ends up making a pretty penny in the process. You know, we're so used to things being in short supply. Got to get a new iPhone before they sell out. Got to watch the price of commodities before they rise. Shortage, that's a part of the economic world in which we live in. But when it comes to the forgiveness that we find, when we come to the throne of grace, shortage is a word that we should forget about entirely. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness, is our, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. When God forgives, he forgives over and above what's needed. He has an infinite supply, enough to go around so that no sinner who repents and comes to him through Jesus will ever be left empty-handed. There's no shortage of redemption for God's people. And that means that we can be confident that we can lead others into worship with hearts that are freed from guilt just like we've found. Our church has a core value called extravagant grace. 
It is built on the conviction that we who have received plentiful redemption should turn around and treat others with the same sort of extravagance. It's, it comes from verses like Luke 7:47, where Jesus, after forgiving a, a sinful woman, tells them that he who is forgiven little loves little. And the implication is, he who is forgiven much loves much. Our core value reads like this. As undeserving sinners saved by grace, we desire to be a congregation known for joyfully blessing others with the grace that God has lavished upon us. We seek to demonstrate this by exercising a patient and forbearing spirit, forgiving as God has forgiven us, and extravagantly, extravagantly giving of ourselves and our resources to those God has appointed us to serve. One way you can tell whether you believe God gives plentiful redemption, including to sinners like you, is whether you extend plentiful redemption to other sinners. Ask yourself, when someone sins against you, would they describe you as being plentiful in forgiveness toward them? Is your first reaction to get angry, to lash out? Is it to, to nurse a grudge, to pull back? Or maybe it's to let other people know just how horrible they are by gossiping behind their back. How different is it when we realize the grace we've received, how plentiful it is, and that even that person that sinned against us, and that sin they committed against us, is also covered by plentiful redemption. One of the other implications from this is that we should be so bold in our witness. So bold as we reach out to others who don't know Jesus. You know, you can say with all confidence, no matter who it is you're talking to, no matter what sins they've committed, whether you know them or not, you can say to them, God will forgive you if you'll just repent and trust Jesus. God will wipe away all the guilt from your heart. I know that there's enough grace for you. So would you come learn what I've learned? That God is good. That he has forgiven me of my sins and that he is worthy of my worship. Uh, maybe this week God will put someone in your path that you can tell the good news of this plentiful redemption to. Remember, you can't save anyone. But there is no one that God can't save. Watch as he might use you to save and add another to the number of those who have been redeemed by the grace of our Lord Jesus. Uh, the end of this psalm is a corporate one. Verse 8, he says, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's a vision of God's people together with hearts clear of guilt, standing before God in his presence, worshiping in joy. And brothers and sisters, I hope you recognize that's what you get to do each and every Sunday when you gather with your church family. Uh, there's a reason why worshiping at home uh, by ourselves doesn't provide everything that our hearts, heart needs. Our faith is one that's meant to be lived together. We're meant to stand up together 
and declare that we are forgiven by the blood of Jesus and to look to our left and to our right and to see others that have had the same exact grace applied to their sins. That means every time we come together for a Sunday morning worship, we are completing this course of this journey to joy. We are entering into the very throne room of God together, beholding the very God of Israel with hearts that are cleared of their guilt and are free to joyfully worship him together. That movie, Get Low, ends with Felix Bush finding a sort of forgiveness and a sort of peace. He mends the fences that it's possible to mend in this life. And then finally, a man who's carried so much guilt is giving, given the rest of death. As much as I love the theme that's throughout that movie of the need for forgiveness, the Hollywood directors and writers missed the most important part of that need. It's important for us to mend fences with each other. But what's most important is for our hearts to be free of guilt because we're forgiven before God. To be able to joyfully go before God and enjoy his presence forever. Brothers and sisters, there is plentiful redemption for your heart so that you can join with the gathered people of God, gathered round the great throne in heaven to worship him together forever. Let's pray.